Alright, welcome in everybody to this episode of Mythic Existence. Today we're going to be doing part two of our Shakespeare Power Rankings. And we'll be listing off numbers five through one. We'll check in with the Crazy King, a powerful sorcerer, the Fairy Kingdom, three witches, and a certain Prince of Denmark. So settle in and get ready for another great episode of Mythic Existence. So if you haven't listened to the first part of our Power Rankings... Go ahead and you can do that and catch up. Um, That was recorded a couple of episodes ago, but you're listening to that doesn't really affect uh, whether you'll be able to understand this one or not, but we'll pick it up where we left off and we'll start with number five. And at number five in my rankings comes King Lear. So the basic plot of this play was it's set in ancient Britain. And King Lear is dividing his kingdom between his three daughters, who are Cordelia, Regan, and Goneril. Lear says that he's going to give his kingdom to the daughter that can convince him that they love him the most, or the daughter that does love him the most. Goneril and Regan, who are both corrupt and deceitful, lie with sappy declarations of their love. And Cordelia says that she loves him as a daughter should. And this enrages King Lear, and he decides to disown Cordelia. Uh, And so Cordelia is banished, uh, and Kent, who is also banished by King Lear because he tries to, uh, you you know, get some sense into him, disguises himself in order to protect Lear from the daughter's Reagan and Goneril, who he knows are conspiring against him. So Lear and his companions go to live with Goneril, and she treats him really horribly when he gets there. And so it's pretty apparent that just right away they're they're just treating him really bad, and they're not, uh, you know, they've they've kind of got the upper hand so far because he's already relinquished his his throne, right? Um. And so then Lear sends Kent to Regan, telling that they will live with her. And when Lear and his attendants arrive, they find Kent in prison in the stocks. And then at this point, Gloucester hears the sisters conspiring, and they figure out that he has heard them, and they gouge his eyes out, sort of in like an Oedipus-type situation. Then Cordelia arrives at Dover with troops, and she has since been uh, engaged to the King of France. So she's showing up with uh, troops with the King of France. And Lear sleeps through the battle, and Cordelia is actually defeated and sentenced to death. Goneril and Regan are both in love with Edmund, and there's this whole... uh, subplot of Edmund and Edgar who are brothers and uh, Edmund is actually like kind of the real like he's he might actually be the real villain of this play 
and they're uh, they're sons of Gloucester, I believe. And Edgar is the the illegitimate child of Gloucester, but is really like the actual good one, sort of like Cordelia. And uh, Goneril poisons Regan, so Goneril and Regan have gone against each other. And then when uh, when Goneril discovers that Edmund has been wounded by Edgar, she kills herself. And Edmund's dying breath is a request to reverse the death penalty that has been put upon Cordelia, but it's too late. And then Lear enters, carrying Cordelia in his arms. Cordelia dies, and Lear dies on top of Cordelia, having realized his mistakes. And then Edgar becomes the king of Britain. So, what I like about this play is that it's the greatest pure tragedy I've ever read. I mean, it's absolutely a transformative text. I can remember, uh, I've, I've only read this play once. I've read most of the plays I've talked about multiple times. Um, but Lear, I've only read once. It's very long. It was the longest for me to get through just because, uh, I mean, it's, it's long in its length, but it's emotionally taxing. It's it kind of it drains you. Like when, the, when I got done reading it the first time, I was just like, Oh my gosh, that just, that it's hard to explain, but it just, it takes a lot out of you. And it just, you really, um, so much happens that, that's uh, that the plot overview doesn't do justice for the entire play, um, as a whole. And it's just, it's the, it's the best tragedy, I think, in forms of being a tragedy. And it has these great subplots as well. The Edmund and Edgar subplot is just tremendous. It's kind of a foil to the uh, the Lear and his daughter's plot. Um, but yeah, Edgar might be my favorite character in the play. My favorite character in the, characters in the play are Edgar and, and the Fool. King, Fears, King Lear's Fool is uh, a great character. So, I think one of the esoteric sort of meanings that is submerged in the play is that it's 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 actually a lot about alchemy. Uh, Lear, I think, is the self-devouring Ouroboros of alchemy. Um, he says, "Come not between the dragon and his wrath." And so the the Ouroboros is this tail-eating serpent or dragon, and in alchemy, you need to be reduced down to nothing before you can have this transformative uh, experience take place, and it happens very quickly, and that's exactly what happens to Lear. He's melted down and just re- reduced absolutely nothing. He's lost everything, and he has to have this happen before this transformation can take place. So, um, the uh, the physical blindness that happens in Gloucester, who is kind of the foil to uh to Lear and I hope I'm saying that right Gloucester because I know there's like Leicester looks like Leicester I sometimes struggle with that with these English names but uh Gloucester I believe uh, he's got this physical blindness but Lear has this spiritual blindness and when this change happens it happens very quickly and it's at the end before this final transformation and Lear also he says at one point he says who is it that can tell me who I am and the fool replies, Lear's shadow. So he has to integrate this whole shadow 
aspect of his his persona. And then there's this big battle at the end, which I think you can sometimes see this as being um, this battle that you rage within yourself when you're on the path to a spiritual metamorphosis. It's the same thing that takes place in uh, the Iliad. It's the same thing that takes place in stuff like the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata. I think that this is kind of the same battle that's going on. And my favorite quote, um, it, it comes from Edmund, I believe. It's when Edmund and Edgar are having this conversation at the cliffs of Dover. And he says, We make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon, and the stars. As if we were villains on necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treacherers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on, an admirable evasion of a whoremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star, my father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, and my nativity was under Ursa Major, so that it follows I am rough and lecherous. Fut, I should have been that I am, had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. So maybe that was, I, I, I'll have to go back and check. That, that might have been Edgar. Uh, but the fact that it's rough and lecherous, I just forgot to check who, who said this quote before I, uh, before I put it in. I think it must, it must be Edmund since it's rough and lecherous, but Edgar is the bastard or so I thought. I get them confused because it's like, why it stinks that their names are Edmund and Edgar because they're so hard to differentiate just based on that and their brothers. But this is this whole idea of. Uh, you know, astrological influence. And I think that this quote could be read two ways. Uh, he says, you know, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, the stars. And you could read it as him saying they are guilty or he could say we make them guilty. But then as he further goes on, he says, you know, my father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail. And that's Ophiuchus. The dragon's tail is this, this 13th sign. Um, it's often like kind of submerged. Uh, I, I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast, but you know, in, in Western astrology, we have this 12 sign system, but in what's called sidereal zodiac and sidereal astrology, they have this 13th sign of Um, and that actually has to do with what we've talked about with Hamlet's mill and the change from the pole star and this could be another aspect of that because the pole star once was in the sign of Ophiuchus and now it actually is in Ursa Major, I believe. Polaris is um, in Ursa Major. So, you know, astrology is all over, uh, all over Shakespeare. Like every single play has astrological undertones. And uh, I think that I've talked about the the book Shakespeare in the Stars. It's got a great chapter about about uh, King Lear. I haven't read it for a while, but I remember that there was, I think that there was a chapter about King Lear and alchemy and King Lear and astrology in that book. Um, but yes, that's my favorite quote from, from the play. So 
That's number five. Number four is The Tempest. And to give you an idea of what the play is about, the plot. Um, so at the beginning, there's this ship and it's carrying Alonzo, who is the king of Naples, uh, with his son Ferdinand, Antonio, and other no- nobles. And they are wrecked by a storm created by Ariel, who is a spirit under the control of the magic art of Prospero, who is this sorcerer who used to be the Duke of Naples, who was wronged by all of these guys on the ship. And uh, basically, um, I guess not Shanghai, but um, what's the term for when you're you're cast away to an island. Um, there's a specific term, but he, um, he, anyway, he's on this island. Uh, that's going to drive me crazy that I can't remember the word. Exiled, I guess. Exiled, right? Um, so then in the next scene, Prospero explains to his daughter, Miranda, that he is the rightful Duke of Milan and that he was usurped by Antonio and banished to this island. Uh, Ariel reports that the lords are on the island and that Ferdinand is separated from them. And Caliban, who is an, an inhabitant of the island, is sent out to do Prospero's bidding. Caliban is like this monstrous creature. Ariel leads Ferdinand across the island and they, he eventually finds Miranda, 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 and they, and they the lords search for Ferdinand. So they're, they're going throughout the island trying to find him. They think that he's drowned. Antonio persuades Alonzo's brother, Sebastian, to kill the king. Ariel intervenes. Caliban finds the uh, the jester Trinculo and the butler Stefano, and they get drunk and plan to kill Prospero. That's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Caliban, I remember he calls the he, he he calls the liquor celestial liquor, and I always thought that that was a, an interesting phrase. Um, and then Prospero puts on this magical banquet bef- place before the lords. Sebastian and Antonio were reprimanded. Then Iris, Juno, and Ceres are brought in for a ceremony. Ariel chases Caliban, Stefano, and Trinculo away. Prospero vows to give up his magical powers, and he frees Ariel. Ariel leads the lords to Prospero. They beg for forgiveness, and he gets his dukedom restored. So... Um, what I like the most about this play is, uh, this was Shakespeare's last play and he knew it was going to be the, the last play. So he knew he, wa- he wanted to go out with a bang and it's one of the most magical plays. Like it's this magical Island. It's, it's unique in the setting because, um, oftentimes Shakespeare's plays are set in a historical landscape, but, there there could be magical elements. This one is on this like magical island and th- there's a theory that the whole play might be a dream. Like this might be a, a dream of Shakespeare's and we're like experiencing, um, you know, his inner personas or like, I think that we're not supposed to take this play as being, happening in reality like Hamlet is, even though there is, like, a ghost in Hamlet, you know? Um, This play predicts a lot of post-colonial and critical race theory. A lot of the context in which it was written was the exploration of the New World, 
which was really going on in this, you know, the the early 1600s. And I mean, if you don't know when Shakespeare is active, like uh, I I believe the Tempest was written 1610 or so, and uh, some of the earliest plays, Comedy of Errors, was like 1593. So, I mean, he had this 17-year window where he published 37, 38 plays, which is just incredible, given that these are, like, the biggest pieces of literature ever. But this is when the exploration of the New World was happening. Um, Sir Sir Walter Raleigh was going out to Jamestown and all that stuff at the time. So, um, the New World is... That's kind of what this island is, is the New World. And then, like... Caliban is kind of um, uh, a figure of this this New World savage, right? And I, you could say that that's problematic, but I think that it's the typical Shakespeare um, self-conscious knew what he was kind of doing, knew what he was kind of saying with Caliban. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of really good critical thought that occurs there. Um, as far as what's the secret thing that's going on in this play, so we've kind of been dancing around the auth- the question of the authorship, which is the most hotly contested thing in Shakespeare studies, probably. Stratfordians who think that William Shakespeare was the sole author of the plays will not entertain the idea that anybody else wrote them. And... Um, you know, to be a to be a Shakespeare scholar and to to claim that anybody else did is like the most taboo thing that you can do. I think that it's worth considering. I, I think that's especially worth considering that Francis Bacon might have had a role in the authorships, and um, Bacon came up with a way. Uh, he Bacon had a lot of cryptography experience, meaning that he came up with these ciphers to hide knowledge and you often find those ciphers in the Shakespeare plays and in scene 1.2 which is where uh, act 1 scene 2 where Prospero is explaining to Miranda his whole backstory uh, there's this really weird cipher where um, Prospero says for thou must know now farther you have often begun to tell, or, um, no, sorry, Miranda is saying this. For thou must now know further. You have often begun to tell me what I am, but stopped, stopped, and left me to a bootless inquisition, concluding, stay, not yet. The hours now come. The very minute, uh, minute bids thee ope thine ear, obey, and be attentive. And that's Prospero jumps in and says that. Uh, the hours now come is when Prospero starts speaking. But if you look down the side of it, it spells out F. Bacon Toby. And there's these weird indentations that allows it to spell out F. Bacon. And Toby is a reference to Toby Matthews, who is this confidant of of Francis Bacon. Um, and in, the, in this scene, he keeps on saying, please, I pray thee, be attentive. And like, there's these weird stops and it's like, it's calling attention to itself. Um, so there's this cipher in here saying, F Bacon, you've begun to tell me what I am. So like, what, what, what am I? And then uh, later there's, 
this the, this guy Mather Walker has all of these ideas about um, Francis Bacon leaving this uh, intellectual compass basically in the plays. It's it's complicated. I I don't have my mind completely wrapped around what this intellectual compass is, but it's a way for interpreting the works and interpreting Francis Bacon's work in a Shakespearean context. So if you're interested, go to sirbacon.org and read the read all of the essays, but read the one about the Tempest um, because it's long. And he, he wrote like a 100-page book, um, book, article, and I read it years ago. But it's interesting to read nonetheless. So... Like most Shakespeare plays, this one's got a lot of great quotes. One of my favorites comes from Ariel when she's talking to, must be, um, Ferdinand. And Ferdinand is asking about his father, and she says, or I guess for, Ariel is a guy, but for some reason Ariel is always a female to me. And Ariel says, Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. There's, those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. So I love that. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Just perfect, like the most poetic thing that you could ever, ever write. Um, that's one of my favorite ones. There's a lot of him, them in here. I'm going to pull out a uh, passage from uh, Act 5, Scene 1, which is another... uh, Act 1, Scene 2, and Act 5, Scene 1 are two of the most memorable scenes in in all of Shakespeare, I think. And this is kind of, you know... um, Shakespeare knows that this is kind of his send-off. And so, uh, Shakespeare is... Prospero like he he projected a lot of himself into Prospero I think whoever Shakespeare is and this is kind of Shakespeare giving up his magical powers and this is also Prospero giving up his magical magical powers so he says ye elves of hills brooks standing lakes and groves and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune and do fly him when he comes back. You demi-puppets that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make, whereof the ewe not bites, and you whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew, by whose aid, weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontime sun, called forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war, to the dread rattling thunder have I given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own bolt. The strong-based promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oped and let them forth by so by my so potent art. But this rough magic I here abjure, and when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end, Upon their senses that the, this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. So, 
he's relinquishing his magic powers and there's references to all sorts of other of Shakespeare's magical characters in this, uh, the elves, you know, that that's, I think the fairies of Midsummer's Night's Dream. Um, you know, I think that that's probably the, the midnight mushrooms is a reference to, and the sour ringlets are these fairy rings, magic rings, um, graves, have opened that's you know the the uh the ghost of hamlet probably um and i think the pine and cedar is probably a reference to the witches of macbeth but i love i love that quote i love that whole um speech i guess it is so much um and then there's a couple more i want to read off this is another one from scene 1.2 and uh, Prospero says, and to my state grew stranger, being transported and wrapped in secret studies. And I, I just love that wrapped in secret studies is often how I've kind of felt when I'm I've been doing this kind of research. Honestly, esoteric type of research, magical type of research. Um, one more from one one two is. What seest thou else in the dark, backward, and abysm of time? That's Prospero asking her. I think that Miranda said something about remembering his mom or her mom. And he's like, what, what seest thou else in the dark, backward, and abysm of time? So if you haven't read Shakespeare, you can hear these quotes and understand why people love him because nobody else is capable of writing like this. And then finally, we are such, such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Just a beautiful little quote. So that's number four. Number three is A Midsummer's Night's Dream. So the plot of this is Duke Theseus and Hippoly- uh, Hippolyta. I think that's how, that's how I've always said it. Hippolyta. Hippolyta. Um, Hippolyta is what we'll call her. Are preparing for their wedding. Aegeus arrives with his daughter Hermia along with Lysander and Demetrius. Hermia and Lysander are in love, but Aegeus wants Hermia to marry Demetrius. Theseus says that Aegeus must have his way, and he gives Hermia a month to either marry Demetrius or die or become a nun. So Hermia and Lysander run away to the forest. Hermia tells Helena... um, their plan, who also tells Demetrius who she loves. So Helena loves Demetrius. Demetrius loves Hermia. Hermia loves Lysander. Lysander loves Hermia. And then there is a group of tradesmen that plan to uh, put on the play Pyramus and Thisbe at Theseus's wedding, and they plan to rehearse in the forest, this magical forest that they run off to. Oberon and Titania, who are the king and queen of fairies, are arguing over who should have a changeling that Titania stole. Titania won't give him up, so Oberon tells Puck to find a magic flower and squeeze it into her eyes while she sleeps, which will make her fall in love with the first person or being that she sees. Oberon also sees Demetrius reject Helena, and uh, he says to put the potion in his eyes as well. So Puck mistakes Lysander for Demetrius, Lysander falls in love with Helena when he wakes up. The rustics are practicing, and Puck turns a character named Bottom into, uh, he gives him the ass, the horse, 
sorry, he gives him that head of an ass. Uh, Titania falls in love with Bottom, and he is treated like a lord. Hermia thinks that Demetrius has killed Lysander. Oberon puts magic in Demetrius's eyes, who falls in love with Helena. So Demetrius and Helena are now in love. Demetrius and Lysander duel. Puck puts the antidote on Lysander's eyes. Oberon releases Titania from her spell and removes the ass's head from bottom. Theseus and Hippolyta hunt in the forest. They find the lovers and they say that they can marry however they want. Bottom is reunited with his friends and they do the play and Oberon blesses the couple. So what I like most about this play is the setting and the tone is just so magical and whimsical. It's just like, it's got that feel of the English idol. You know, you can really, you feel transported there. Um, that's, that's really what I love about it. It's just so magical. It's whimsical. It's got the fairy world. You feel like you're just traveling into the fairy world. Um, there's a really great movie that was made of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. It's got Sam Rockwell, Stanley Tucci as Puck, Michelle Pfeiffer is in it, Christian Bale is in it. It's a great movie. I would suggest watching it. Um, there's a lot going on in this play. Theseus and Hippo, uh, Hippolyta are the mythological hero Theseus and the Amazon queen. That's where they get their name from. And Theseus says... I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love doing the injuries. So there's uh, this off-screen battle that happened between Theseus and his warriors and Hippolyta and her Amazonian warriors. So it's got this love and warfare conflict. And um, according to like the old way of thinking at this time, love and warfare gave birth to... Hermione or Harmonia, which is means harmony. So Hermia is this character Hermione, which of course we know in Harry Potter. And this whole Midsummer's Night's Dream, like this dream, is I think a play off of kind of like this Vedic cosmology where Vishnu is this creator god that is sleeping and creating the world, and so the world is an illusion. And we also get that from Platonic philosophy, the, the philosophy of Plato, which is something that we can gather as having a role in this play because the play is taking in the wo- place in the woods of Athens, which is outside of where the Academy of Plato was located. Um, and so in Plato's, uh, in Plato's dialogues in the Republic, he says that there's that the, this world is not the real world. It's a reflection of the real world. And he says that there's four levels. And so that's we've got these four levels going on in the play. Theseus' Theseus's court, um, the lovers, the, the fairies, and the tradesmen. Um, and then another thing is that it's always good to question what the characters' names mean. Um, Helen means light and Demetrius comes from the name Demeter, which is the earth. So the light of the sun needs to be married with the earth to give form to life. And then Lysander also means liberator. So he has to marry 
harmony to liberate nature and make her one, basically. Um, my favorite quote comes from Oberon when he's telling Puck where to get this magical flower. He says, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite overcanopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses, and with eglantine. And that's kind of well, that that like pastoral sort of rhyming whimsical feeling is how the entire play kind of goes. And Shakespeare's just got a great way of creating the feeling through the language. And then um, we have coming in at number two, Macbeth. So the plot of Macbeth is um, three witches are meeting with Macbeth. And uh, they predict that Macbeth will become the Thane of Cawdor and one day the king, um, the Scottish king. This is also called the Scottish play. And they also say that Banquo will be the father of kings. Macbeth is impressed with the witches when he is given the title of Thane. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth plot to kill King Duncan when he arrives to their castle and they do murder him. And then Macduff arrives, finds the bodies, and uh, Duncan's sons flee. Um, And then Macbeth is made king. He conspires to kill Banquo because he still has the witch's words on his mind, um, as well as his son Fleance, I believe is how you say it, Fleance. Um, They succeed in killing Banquo, but the son escapes. Macbeth sees Banquo's ghost at dinner later that night, and he's just terrified from it. Um, And then he goes to speak with the witches again. The witches say that he should fear Macduff, that no man born of a woman can hurt him, and that he won't be vanquished till Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane, and Dunsinane is his castle. And Burnham Wood is like the forest outside of his castle. Um, And then they show him a line of ink, eight kings that are going to come from Banquo. Macduff and Malcolm plot to fight Macbeth. Malcolm orders that his soldiers use camouflage uh, trees as camouflage when they attack. So Macbeth actually sees the um, Burnham Woods coming towards him. Lady Macbeth dies. Um, he meets Macduff in battle and learns of his Caesarian birth. So Macduff is not born from a woman. He is killed by Macduff and Malcolm is proclaimed king. Uh, what I like about this play is it's just so supernatural. It's so creepy and so weird. It's the most quotable text I've ever read outside of Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So it's just full of these like amazing, amazing lines. Um, spoiler alert, Hamlet is going to be discussed at some point in this top five, as you probably guessed, but Hamlet has the best language, words. Macbeth has the best quotes, by far. Um, Macbeth is really a coward. Lady Macbeth is the real villain of this play. Um, and I mean, it's... Astrologically, this play is... Scorpio in Mars. So Mars is the um, the planet of war and like you know all this crazy murderous stuff. 
and Scorpio is the the sign of the occult and witchcraft. And so this is like occult and witchcraft meet war, and that's what you get is this play Macbeth. Uh, my favorite quote, I, I've got a lot, so I'm going to share a few. Stars hide your fires. Let not light see my black and deep desires. That's a, a common theme is this hiding true intent. Uh, and another one that kind of plays off of that is look like the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. Fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through fog and filthy air. That's the witches. They have these great rhyming um, little uh, little quotes like this one as well. Where shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Skull, full of scorpions is my mind. Macbeth says that, and it's like, okay, that's we know it's Scorpio. Um, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn, and cauldron bubble. That's from Macbeth. A lot of people probably know that from uh, Harry Potter. Uh, that's actually from Macbeth. So Macbeth comes in at number two. And number one in the Shakespeare Power Rankings is Hamlet, the greatest piece of literature in the history of Earth, the greatest thing that's ever been written. Uh, the plot, Marcellus and Barnardo tell Horatio that they have seen the ghost of King Hamlet, the dead King Hamlet, and they tell Prince Hamlet about it, who sees the ghost. He meets the ghost who says he was murdered by his brother Claudius, who has married his wife, Gertrude. Um, so Hamlet's father, King Hamlet, was murdered by his uncle, Claudius, who married Hamlet's mother, Gertrude. Uh, Polonius believes they're trying to figure out what, what is causing Hamlet's melancholy. Hamlet is very melancholic, and they're like... What is causing it? I don't know. Could it be the fact that his father died and now he has to see his uncle be married to his mom? Um, Polonius, who is just like this um, guy that hangs out at the castle, um, Castle Elsinore, which is an anagram of Rosalind, um, believes that rejected love by his daughter Ophelia is the cause. And uh, they bring in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, which are plays off of Rosie Cross and Golden Stone that we talked about in the episode about the alchemical um, wedding of uh, Christian Rosie Cross. This is the Rosencrantz. So there's. I still haven't gotten to the bottom of the Rosicrucian elements in Hamlet's, Hamlet, but they have to be there. Um, Hamlet and Ophelia argue. Hamlet tells her to get to a nunnery. That's after his famous, uh, to be or not to be soliloquy. Uh, Hamlet, uh, sorry. Yeah, I got past that. Claudius is convinced that love is not the cause and decides to send him abroad. And before that, some traveling players arrive and Hamlet comes up with this plan to make them perform this play called the murder of Gonzago. Uh, he says, the play is the thing in which I'll catch the conscience of the king. So he's trying to get a rise out of Claudius because in the play, a king is poisoned. Um, and there, that whole thing has to do with the Garden of Eden and the serpent in the garden. That's stuff we've covered in past uh, episodes. 
Um, and Claudius leaves in high emotion, which uh, Hamlet is like, all right, so he did kill him. Gertrude asks to see Hamlet in her room, which is this... It's weird that he... I don't know. I've always thought it was weird that she asks to see him in his room and she's like on her bed. And Polonius is hiding in the behind a curtain. Hamlet, on his way there, comes across Claudius while he's praying, and he does it, decides not to kill him then because he, he Claudius will go to heaven um, if he does that, and he thinks that he believes in, belongs in hell. Hamlet goes to Gertrude's room, and he kills the person hiding behind the um, curtain because he thinks it's Claudius. He thinks that Claudius has made his way there. He argues with Gertrude. Um, he tells her to... Um, I think, what is it? Assume a virtue if you have one, something like that. Uh, Hamlet has a really bad relationship with his mom. And that goes back to this, the, um, what we've talked about Freud saying everybody's either Hamlet or Oedipus. You either want to have sex with your mom or you either, or you want to kill her, which he doesn't kill his mom, but he definitely doesn't like her. The ghost reappears reminding him that he needs to take revenge. He's like, what are you taking so long for? Hamlet is then taken to England, and he sees these Norwegian pirates going to fight for a piece of land, and he's like, the, he, he questions them his own motives. He's like, these guys are going to just fight for like a morsely piece of land, but I have like my entire kingdom to fight for. Um, Ophelia goes mad. Laertes returns and blames Claudius. Laertes is the son of Polonius. Hamlet decides to return. Claudius and Laertes plan to murder him. And they arrange a duel with Laertes' uh, sword unblunted and poisoned. A a fencing match. Uh, Claudius also poisons a drink. Ophelia drowns. Hamlet reveals himself to the funeral party. That's the, the scene with the... Um, the skull that everybody everybody fixates on the to be or not to be and the soul the skull thing and those are great but there's a lot of other great stuff in Hamlet Gertrude toasts Hamlet in the fencing match she drinks the poison cup and uh, Claudius is like oh no you were not supposed to do that so things are starting to go south I, I, I mentioned um to my fiance, my now fiance Carly, who also loves Hamlet, when I was drafting this, I was like, Hamlet was the original uh, Quentin Tarantino because everything is going to come to a very bloody end. Um, Laertes wounds Hamlet with the poison sword, so Hamlet's going to die, and then Hamlet wounds Laertes, so they're both going to die, and then Hamlet kills the king. He stabs him through the heart with the poison blade. And forces him to drink the poison. Um, and I, you, you have to watch the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. This end scene is just... I'll always remember um, Kenneth Branagh as Hamlet just forcing the poison down whoever plays Claudius's throat. And then with his dying wish, Hamlet passes the succession to Fortinbras, who has been kind of lurking in the background... Um, he's another one of these guys who's trying to avenge their father, Fortinbras, Hamlet, Laertes, this kind of triple foil. So that's the plot. Um, what I like about the play, it's 
like I said, it's just it's simply the greatest thing ever written. Uh, I read a lot. It's by far the greatest thing I've ever read. Doesn't matter which language, Hamlet is the best thing ever. Um, Hamlet's lines are packed with the most esoteric, not like occult, but just like crazy words that you've never heard before. Um, Polonius says that his words are pregnant with meaning because it's like, what is he saying? Part of it is like Hamlet is feigning that he's gone insane, but he's actually just toying with everybody. Hamlet's the best character ever. The ending is the best. Like, out of all of the Shakespeare plays, the ending's the best. Um, that's one of the problems that I have with the Tempest and A Midsummer's Night's Dreams is that the, the endings are kind of like... I don't know what you guys were really... I mean, I guess Midsummer's Night's Dream is it's comedy. You know they're all going to get married. But, like, in The Tempest, you know it's leading towards Prospero being restored as the Duke. But, I don't know. I... I there's something that I just haven't always loved about the end of uh, The Tempest. It's just a flawless piece of literature, Hamlet. Um, the secret message, it's, it's what we've talked about, Hamlet's Mill. Go listen to my Hamlet's Mill podcast if you want to learn more about that. Um, my favorite quote, I've got a few. I'm going to read off my favorite soliloquy because the best... The best parts of the play are in Hamlet's soliloquies, and everybody, like I said, knows the to be or not to be, but that's like not even close to being my favorite soliloquy of his. So this is um, from when Hamlet decides to go back and fight. He says, How all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge. What is a man if his chief good market of his time be but to sleep and feed a beast no more? Sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Now, whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward, I do not know, why yet I live to say, this thing's to do. Sith I have cause, and will, and strength, and means to do it. Examples gross as earth exhort me. Witness this army of such mass and charge, led by a delicate and tender prince, whose spirit with divine ambition puffed, make mouths at mouths the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure, to all that fortune, death, and danger dare, even for an eggshell. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. How stand I then, that have a father killed, a mother stained, excitements of my reason in my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of twenty thousand men that, for a fantasy and trick of fame, go to their graves like beds." Fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try thy cause, which is not tomb enough incontinent to hide the slain. Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody, or be nothing worth. So that's Hamlet. He's deciding, all right, I'm full in. I'm going to go kill Claudius. I'm turning around. Um, and, I mean, there's... 
There's a lot to unpack in that whole soliloquy, but a lot of what's been going on in Hamlet's mind, he's sort of uh, resolving it here. Uh, another one of my favorite quotes is, Ex- well, they ask Hamlet how he's doing, and he says, Excellent, I faith, of the chameleon's dish. I eat the air, promise crammed. You cannot feed capons so. Which everybody's like, what are you talking about, dude? What What are you talking about? Um, and so the interpretation of that is, Hamlet is a chameleon, living mostly on promises from Claudius of what is due to him, including a pun, air, air, while Claudia thinks of Hamlet as a gelded, harmless capon to be fed, possibly later for slaughter, while Hamlet is in fact only masquerading like a chameleon, and they have this folklore that chameleons feed on the air. So that's like all of what Hamlet's quotes are like, and you're just like, what is he talking about? But there's, you have to unpack them, and I mean, I've read Hamlet probably four or five times, I think, and I still I come across all sorts of quotes, and I'm like, all right, I need to actually figure out what he's saying here. So that's Hamlet, number one. And that's it for today's episode. Obviously, by now, you know that I love Shakespeare. You really have to start reading Shakespeare for yourself to understand how great they are. Um, I meant to mention earlier, I've got the copy of Bevington's Shakespeare, 7th edition. Definitely get an annotated copy because you're going to have to figure out what the words actually mean. But... Um, you've gotten an idea for what's actually going on in the plays, but you, you gotta read them for yourself. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.